Tech Writer Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 644 for the 26th of May, 2019. This week, Luminar is a new photo editing application. Although it may not yet be a serious competitor for Adobe's Lightroom Classic, it does offer some useful features, and it works with Lightroom. In short circuits, fans of magazines will find two online options worth checking out. Apple News Plus, formerly Texture, which has a $10 monthly fee, and Flipster, which is available for free to patrons of many libraries. Microsoft has an easy way to add emoticons to any document or email, but it still lags when it comes to adding more common symbols. In spare parts, only on the website, robocall scams are becoming more prevalent, and senior citizens are proving to be lucrative targets for the scammers. And one manufacturer of drones will be adding new safety features to many of its products. When Adobe established its Software as a Service, or rental, plan, other developers saw an opening that they could exploit. On one, Alien Skin and other developers who previously offered plugins for Photoshop and Lightroom started promoting standalone applications. Luminar from Skylum is another competitor that can be used separately or with Adobe products. Luminar's version 3 had some serious shortcomings, shortcomings sufficiently serious that I couldn't recommend it. A recent update to version 3.1 changes most of that, but there are still a few gotchas. Perhaps the most significant gotcha involves the application's library file that, unlike Lightroom's catalog, doesn't store processing information. Luminar stores raw files, digital negative files, and JPEG files in whatever directory the user specifies and notes the location in the library file. Then it records processing information in separate state files. If something happens to either the library or the state files, information will be lost. And of course, if something happens to Lightroom's catalog, information will also be lost. Skylum says that Luminar allows users to handle importing and moving files using the operating system's native file management system. For Windows, that would be the File Explorer, and for Mac OS computers, the Finder. Well, that's true, but only if Luminar is running. The user who imports, moves, or deletes files when Luminar isn't running will regret it. Now, that may seem obvious to software developers, but the distinction is likely to be lost on at least some users. Luminar could have a background process that would be installed as a service to monitor directories that the user specifies. That would, of course, increase complexity. Another alternative would be to have Luminar enumerate files in its watched directories at load time, but that would make the program start very slowly. If you give Luminar a try, do be sure to review the Beginner's Guide, because the operation is different from what you might expect. Each digital photo processing application has a unique approach. 
For example, DxO's PhotoLab 2 examines images and tries to establish the best possible baseline process. AlienSkin's Exposure 4 continues to enhance its ability to create film looks, and the developers of OnOne's PhotoRaw have been working to create a more intuitive user interface. The initial release of Luminar 3 that I started using just before the 3.1 update was released was unable to import all of my photos. One specific directory contained image files that caused the import process to hang. Unfortunately, when that happened, it also corrupted Luminar's catalog file, which is an SQLite document. The catalog by default on a Windows machine is stored in the pictures directory under the username, and it's called Luminar Catalog. The catalog can be stored on a separate drive if you want to keep what can become a large file off the boot drive. If the library is corrupted, it can be restored from the backups directory in the Luminar catalog folder. And you'll note I periodically call the Luminar library a catalog, and I think Luminar does the same thing. They actually call the library a catalog. Uh, it gets a little confusing here. The catalog file and the backups are 132 megabytes on my computer for about 70,000 images. A preview cache folder adds another 85 megabytes now, but that's going to grow significantly over time. Even though the catalog, the backup, and the cache files are efficient, I prefer not to have them on the boot drive. As I was working through the problems prior to the 3.1 upgrade, I learned something important about Skylum's support. It is astonishingly fast. The expected automatic response arrived immediately after I opened a support ticket. That's normal, but generally I found the first meaningful response won't come for at least a day or two. Well, the first response from a real person arrived so fast that I almost ignored it, thinking it was another automatic response. Users will appreciate that kind of support. Users will also appreciate the price, about $70 for an application that can be installed on up to five computers, Mac OS or Windows, and has a perpetual license. This compares to Adobe's $120 per year plan, including Lightroom, Lightroom Classic, Photoshop Bridge, Adobe Camera Raw, Spark, and one terabyte of online storage. Skylum doesn't have Photoshop's capabilities, but the price is certainly going to be a significant attraction for those who never need pixel-level editing. So let's see how Luminar works. The library was a new feature starting with version 3, and the initial problems seem to have been corrected. Still, it's important to understand that downloading images from a camera, moving images, or deleting images must be done when the program is running. Making these changes when Luminar isn't running will cause problems. Because the library module doesn't automatically create thumbnail images at import time, imports are very fast. But the user pays for this speed later because the thumbnail images aren't generated until the user opens the directory and scrolls down. This process happens reasonably fast, even for large RAW files, and it happens only once. Even so, it's a minor annoyance. Once the thumbnails have been created, scrolling through the library is fast. Although most processing applications offer filters to help a user find images taken or imported on a specific date, Luminar does this automatically. It examines each file's EXIF data and creates entries for them arranged by year, month, and day. There's a similar arrangement for recently edited photos. A similar set of entries shows when files were added. 
The number of files in each category is displayed in nearly invisible dark gray on black at the right of the entry. Unfortunately, there seems to be no way to change that. As efficient as Luminar is in creating the catalog or library, it is not at all efficient in recording modifications to images. Every single change results in the creation of a new state file. Move a slider, you generate a new state file. There are literally dozens of sliders, and making even the most basic adjustments might require touching eight or ten sliders, sometimes more than once. You'll get a new state file each time, and these can add up substantially. The state files are a lot larger than they need to be. One reason for the bloated files is the use of XML to record the information. XML stands for Extensible Markup Language. Using XML makes the file minimally human-readable, but not so much that it justifies a terribly inefficient format. XML is intended for data transfer, not data storage. And I hope that a future version of the application will embed the processing information in the catalog or library database. After making changes to just three photos, I found that Luminar had created 207 state files. This is not a scalable solution. In edit mode, the interface is designed to maximize space for the image. Starting in the upper left corner of the screen, the first icon activates the file import process. This can be used to add existing images on a disk drive to the catalog, and that drive can be an external unit that isn't always attached to the computer. This is what you'd also use if you happen to forget to have the program running when you download files to the computer. On the left side of the screen, you'll see a film strip view in the edit mode. This can be displayed or hidden. It cannot be resized. Because the images are so small, it's really not very useful. Perhaps resizing is something that'll be added to a future version. The next icon on the top bar switches between thumbnail and full screen view. Then you'll see an icon that looks like a bullet list. It displays the path to the current image or current directory and allows the user to move back to directories that are higher in the tree. Two side-by-side -side icons hide or display the film strip side panel and current photo actions and hide or display the Luminar Looks panel below the current image. In the center of the top bar, three icons are provided to zoom in or out and to allow the user to select specific magnification from 25% to 1200%. The next two icons resemble an eye and a splitter bar. During editing, the user can click the eye icon to display the original image, and the splitter bar turns on a before and after view that divides the image vertically. There is no option to split the image horizontally or to swap the before and after views. A tools icon provides access to cropping, free transform, clone and stamp, and erase functions. Three icons near the right edge of the top bar switch between library, edit, and info mode. Info shows just a small amount of information about a selected photo. This is another area that needs attention because the camera's EXIF data, keywords, and other text associated with images are useful, and in fact they are sometimes essential. At the far right of the top bar, there's an export function that currently has only two options, email and SmugMug. Develop tools are in a full height vertical section at the right of the image, and this is where Luminar's filters and power reside. There are 51 filters, 
and the user can combine two or more of these to create a custom workspace. Several workspaces already exist. Essential, with just a few options. Creative and Professional both have a lot of options. Issue Fixers and Utility have specialized filters. Below the image are selectors to add a color label, to mark the image as liked or to be discarded, and to rate the image from 1 to 5 stars. Below that is the Luminar Looks panel where the user can select from a variety of prepared treatments. Be sure to check out the TechBiter Worldwide website to see this in action. A week or so ago I came home from a birthday party where I'd taken an image with an extremely fast shutter to stop the action. As a result, the image was more than a full stop underexposed. I knew that when I created the image, and I knew that because it was a RAW file, fixing the exposure would be easy. But even after some careful cropping, there was a boy's head and another boy's hand in the lower right-hand corner. I found that distracting, and I wanted to remove the head and the hand. Luminar's erase function is actually more powerful than a similar function in Lightroom Classic, but not as good as what's found in Photoshop. It works reasonably well for small areas, but the result with the image that I was working on was unusable. So I selected Luminar's clone function. It is a lot slower, and the operation is a lot more jerky than Photoshop would be, but the result was acceptable. And it would eliminate one step in the Adobe workflow where I would fix the exposure in Lightroom and then pass a copy to Photoshop for the clone tool. However, the Luminar process crashed requiring that I redo some of the work. Luminar 3.1 has more tools than Lightroom Classic does, and the tools are called filters. Filters can be accumulated into workspaces so that the users can create arrangements for different types of photos, adding tools that they always use near the top, placing tools they use infrequently lower, and eliminating tools that they never use. Initially, users will see the Quick and Awesome workspace, which has only a few filters, the Essentials workspace contains a good variety of tools that Skylum's developers believe many users will want to use. Creating a custom workspace is easy. You can start with an existing workspace and add or remove filters, or start with a blank slate. Then when you have the workspace you prefer, give it a name so that you can recall it for any future job. So the bottom line for Luminar is three cats. It could begin to attract some Adobe users. It's unlikely that pros who depend on Lightroom, Lightroom Classic, Photoshop, Bridge, Adobe Camera Raw, and Spark will abandon those tools anytime soon. But in less than two years, Skylum has created a workable photo editing application that attempts to compete with Adobe Photoshop, currently 31 years old, and Adobe Lightroom, which has been on the market for 13 years. And they've done that in just two years. The 3CAT rating shows that Luminar is a solid product with a future. In fact, the company shares its roadmap for future developments publicly. There's a link to the roadmap on the TechBiter Worldwide website. And if you'd like additional details, check out the Skylum website. Yep, there's also a link to the Skylum website from the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. In short circuits, magazines are important. They occupy a journalistic space between newspapers and books. Newspapers are fast and brief. Books are much more detailed, but slow. 
Magazines are relatively fast and relatively detailed. Because the articles are longer, reading them takes more time, and few people want to carry around a stack of magazines. There are options. A service called Texture provides access to about 200 magazines on computers, notebooks, tablets, and mobile devices for $10 a month. The service previously was scaled back to include just mobile devices, and now that Texture has been acquired by Apple to only Mac OS and iOS devices. Computer access has been restored for Mac OS users, but Windows and Android users are out of luck. Hey, Apple, thanks. Well, it's now called Apple News Plus, and it's available only in the United States and Canada. The subscription price is still $10 a month, but it works only with an iPhone, an iPad, or an iPod Touch, with iOS 12.2 or later, or a Mac with Mac OS 10.14.4 or later. Apple News Plus includes hundreds of magazines, online publications, several newspapers. A single subscription can also be shared among six family members. Folio Magazine has compiled a list of the magazines included in Apple News. I have a link to that article on the TechBiter Worldwide website this week. The newspaper list is so small that pathetic might be a good description. Newspapers such as the New York Times and the Washington Post are not there. The Wall Street Journal and the Los Angeles Times did sign up, though. There is another option, though. Flipster is licensed by many libraries and library consortiums. The magazine selection isn't as broad or as deep as what Apple News Plus offers, currently just 52 publications, but it is a good general selection, and it's available without any additional cost. If you have a library card from a participating library, you can log in and read the magazines from any device you own, wherever you happen to be. Depending on your preferences and your interests, Flipster might be all you need. Flipster also offers the option to print individual pages or an entire issue of a magazine. Texture, on the other hand, did everything possible to make printing or sharing content impossible. Apple News Plus continues that. Both Flipster and Apple News Plus make it impossible to select text and copy it. That is a significant shortcoming because somebody might want to quote part of an article as part of a school report or a business presentation. The ability to copy and paste would be an advantage, and prohibiting the operation probably does little to reduce plagiarism. Those who would plagiarize work will still do so, whether they can do it easily with copy and paste, with the assistance of optical character recognition, or with some difficulty, such as reading and then typing the text. Despite the limitations, both of these services make substantial amounts of printed information available, and at a pretty reasonable cost. Microsoft has made it easy for users to add emoticons to emails and other documents. That's great if you use a lot of emoticons, but it's still far too hard to insert more commonly used special characters. Let's see if we can do a little bit to fix that. Microsoft's emoticon selector, which you open by pressing the Windows key and a period while typing, shows dozens of emoticons you can select. Doesn't include the standard typographic characters, though, so it's really useless for serious work. 
Special characters that people need frequently are fairly easy to memorize. Bullet points, for example, Alt-0149, the E-acute, which is Alt-0233. Fractions, quarter, half, and three-quarters are Alt-0188, 189, and 190, respectively, or the cent symbol, Alt-0162. But what about the ones you don't use very often? The euro, for example, or copyright and trademark symbols, things like that. You might have a printed chart nearby, or you might visit a website, or just use Google Search to find the code when you need it. Wouldn't it be nice, though, if you could just click a couple of keys and pick what you need? Adobe has done this right by providing an ability to select common characters from a drop-down menu that includes symbols, markers, hyphens and dashes, quotation marks, and other characters. The other characters list is big. Microsoft needs this. Until then, though, we do have the Windows character map, but even opening it is a chore. Press the Windows key, type map, and then click the character map from the menu. Once the character map is open, you need to find the character you're looking for, and depending on the currently active font, you'll be able to select from common U.S. and Western characters, and possibly from characters in various other languages. Ideally, there would be an easier way to get to the character map. And there is, but you have to create it. Here's how. Start by opening the Windows menu, scroll down to Windows Accessories and expand that section, then right-click Character Map, click More, and select Pin to Taskbar. That will place an icon on the taskbar, so to open the Character Map, you just click that new icon. In most cases, the character you want will be on the first screen. That's where accented characters, commonly used typographic symbols, currency symbols, fractions, and business symbols are located. Double-clicking any symbol will insert it where the cursor is in the program that you're using. And it stays open until you explicitly close it. You won't need any special keystrokes for spare parts, which is only on the website. This week, you'll find robocall scams becoming more prevalent, Senior citizens are proving to be lucrative targets for the scammers. And one manufacturer of drones will be adding new safety features to many of its products. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.